0: And for the rest of us, we are in the book of Daniel. We are in chapter 11. We are almost finished with the book of Daniel. I hope it has been encouraging to you as it has been for me. So go to chapter 11. Um, If you need a Bible, raise your hand. It's a really big chapter. It's a really detailed chapter. It's slightly an odd chapter. It would be helpful if you had a book, uh, had a Bible open, because we're going to be Looking at uh, much of it, um, kind of jumping around a little bit as well, and it might be helpful to just see it and have it opened up on your lap in front of you. So Daniel chapter 11. Uh, the, I mean, I, I'm, one of my, the privileges of being a pastor is I get to meet a lot of people, and I get to meet a lot of people who do a lot of different jobs, and I just get to be curious about what, what do you do? And every job in one sense, as people are describing what they do for a living, it's hard. Like, every job's hard. Uh, But one job that I think is really hard, maybe because of the last few years, but it's the job of a historian. Okay, just stick with me for a second, all right? So a historian, theoretically, what they're supposed to do is they're supposed to look sort of peer into the past, sometimes the distant past, sometimes uh, the not-so-distant past and to look as objectively as they can and sort of put the pieces of history together and to say, what happened? And maybe even ask the question of why this happened and kind of piece all of it together and then present it to the public in a book or in a lecture. This is what happened. These are all the primary sources. And so as new evidence comes out, we can fill in more and more details of the past. And the role of the historian is hard. It's hard to kind of put all those pieces together. But this is why it's even more difficult. Because often what we want the historian to do isn't just to look back into the past. We want them to then fill in, what, what does this mean for us right now? Like, how does this apply? Like, what principles or lessons can we learn from the past and apply them today? That's why a historian's job is so difficult. Some would even say that's not the role of the historian. They're just supposed to present the facts, the whole facts, and nothing but the facts of history, and then you can make your own sort of implications or lessons. But we want them to. We want them to spell out what history means for us. In many ways, I think the debate, sort of the the hottest conflicts of the last four years, or maybe the last 40 years, or maybe the last 400 years, when you think about it and you stand back, you realize they're really just a debate about history and about what history means. And there's debate. People interpret and apply history in different ways. But can you imagine for a moment if you saw or heard a historian saying, these are the facts, this is the this is what happened in real history, but then just didn't stop there, but then said, and this is what you need to take away from it. This is its meaning for us. Chapter 11 is sort of an odd. It's like a historian's dream. All right. I'm going to read sections of it. And if you're one of those historian types, you're going to be like itching for your Encyclopedia Britannicas. Okay. That's, that's some of you, but for others of you, you're going to be like, I don't even know what this Means Like 350 years in Greece and Persia and all these kings from the north and the south, they're rising and then falling. Like, what does this mean for us? Well, here's the wonderful thing about this aspect of this historical account in Daniel chapter 11. We don't just get the details of history. We get someone outside of history, God himself, who peers into human history and says, this is what it means. This is what we today need to take away from history in the past and even history in the future. So two weeks ago, we looked at Daniel chapter 10. And there's a series of visions, a series of four visions starting in chapter 7. And this is the last vision. In chapter 10, it's sort of the the prologue, the, the context of this vision. We looked at that two weeks ago. And then chapter 11... In the first four verses of chapter 12, it's the content of the vision. And then it's sort of the epilogue to the vision at the end of chapter 12. So today we're going to look at the content of this vision, which is chapter 11. The big idea is simply this. It should be on the screen behind me, which it is. This is what we're going to be looking in sort of two parts. God's plan... For all of history is to deliver his people even from death. So look look at the first few verses of chapter 11. As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up again against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule and with great dominion and do all as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, the kingdom shall be broken and divided towards the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others beside these. We'll, we'll stop there for a moment, all right? So this section in chapter 11, from verse 1 to verse 35, span about 350 years, roughly from 538 BC all the way to about 160. So, so you can think about the, like that. It's, it's kind of the inner testimonial, inner testimonial period between sort of the last prophets and the advent of Christ those kind of silent 400 years. And so from verse 1 all the way to verse 35, it's detailing these kingdoms in and surrounding Palestine are going to rise and fall. First are described these four Persian kingdoms. And so the last of these Persian kingdoms is Artaxerxes that you read in uh, the book of Esther. He's the last Persian king. And then it's plucked out of his hands and Greece takes over and we see Greece and that great king, King uh, Alexander the Great, he shows up in verse 3 and verse 4, doesn't he? Then a mighty king shall arise and dominion and he conquers the world, doesn't he? But he dies at age 32 and his empire is then divided up not to his posterity, which is just what this text says, It's given to four of his generals, the north, the south, the east, and the west. It's divided almost perfectly geographically and given to the four kings. And for about 200, 300 years, they just war against each other. They fight out to kind of get more and more property, get more and more land, and they're fighting itself out. And so from verse 5 all the way to verse 35, you have kingdoms of the south and kingdoms of the north just killing each other to try to get more and more land. And so that's what this detailed vision is, starting in verse 5. You're going to see it's going to talk about the kings of the north and the kings of the south. So the kings of the east and west, they're not important to this vision at all. Just the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south. We'll learn why these are the two kingdoms that are important for this vision in just a moment. But the kingdom of the north, that's the Syrian kingdom. Kingdom of the South, that's roughly the kingdom of Egypt. And I would just say that you really can Wikipedia this, you know, study history and realize that chapter 11, it is very detailed as it relates to history. And it maps out on the history of how, how these kingdoms of the North and South, how they warred against each other. It's very, very prophetically accurate, which is wonderful, isn't it? God's word is true. And so we read in verse 5, Kingdoms of the north are going to rise up, attack kingdoms in the south, and it's going to kind of rinse and repeat. So I'm going to give you just kind of a a sampling of this. I'm going to read a few verses. So look at verse 5. We're going to skip around a little bit, but we're not going to read these 30 verses, but I just want to give you a sort of a flavor of these 200 years in history and what happened. So, verse 5, then the king of the earth, then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and he shall rule. He shall take over, right? And his authority shall be great. After some years, they shall make an alliance and the daughters of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north and make an agreement, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm. And he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up. And her attendants, he who faltered her and he who supported her in those times. Now, skip down to verse 10. His son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and again shall carry the wars as far as his fortress. Then the kings of the south move with Rage shall come out and fight against the kings of the north, and he shall rise again with multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall exalt, and he shall cast away tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the kings of the north shall again ra- raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. Now, skip down to verse 20. Then shall arise in the place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days, he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. So that's just a sampling. But what you see here is you've got kingdoms in the north in Syria coming down, evading, and attacking the kingdom of Egypt. And then you have rinse and repeat, Egypt rising to power. And then all of a sudden, them coming up and attacking kingdoms in the north. And over and over again. In all, if you counted them up, there's about six kings of the north and about seven kings in the south that rise and fall, each attacking one another. They rise to power and they fall to power. They rise and fall. And there's this repeated gong of kingdoms that come and go. And you can read all about it. We're not going to go into detail. You can learn about this in history But really, that's not what's primarily important. What's primarily important is what they're, in some ways, fighting over. We really just need to think about how this kind of plays itself out geographically. Why the north and the south are talked about so often. Because who is in the crossfire of the northern kingdom fighting the southern kingdom? Palestine. God's people are literally, geographically, in the crossfire of this continual 250 year war between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Syria and Egypt. What's right geographically in the middle? Israel. Now, that's pretty bad. I've, I've never been in a battlefield, but I could only assume that being in the crossfire of a battle that you want no part in would be horrific. It'd be horrible. And for Daniel, again, we got to put ourselves in Daniel. Daniel's still in Persia now. He's just wanting to go home. There's this edict from Cyrus to say you can't go home. And now he's realizing that as God's people go home and they build, ah, it's not going to be peacetime. They're going to be in the middle of a battle that's going to go on for centuries. But as bad as being in the crossfire, it gets worse. Because the sort of theological emphasis isn't just that they're in the crossfire, it's that they're in the crosshairs of these two kingdoms, particularly the kingdom of the north. Go to to verse 21. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act uh, deceivingly and he shall become strong with small Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among the plunder and spoil and goods. He shall devise plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. Then skip down to verse 29. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be at this time as it is before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back. And be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. That's God's people. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Now, if you're wondering why this guy is such a contemptible person, verse 31 fills in that. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offerings and they shall set up an abomination that makes desolate. So here we have kind of century after century, kingdoms, uh, kings in the north rise and fall, kings of the south rise and fall. And so there's like 250 years in about 15 verses. And then the next 15 verses, it narrows in on one king, one king in the north and all of his ruling and how he deceives and how he kind of gained power deceitfully And we know in verse 21 why he is so horrific. Or sorry, in verse uh, 31, why he's so evil and contemptible. This is, and we saw this in chapter 8, this is the king um, whose name is Antiochus Epiphanes, who ruled uh, in 175 B.C., and he wasn't even in the line of succession, but he did all these sort of maneuverings in order to gain power. And then having done so, he then eventually turned his attention to God's people and he overtook God's people and eventually he deceived them. He eventually took over the temple and the altar and he, sac- he, he made the altar, which was meant to sacrifice to God, he made it a sacrifice to Zeus. That's why it's literally called the abomination that causes or makes desolate. The altar of God has now been an abomination. It's been desecrated. In Antiochus Epiphanes, he did this. He deceived. He he literally not only made Israel in the crossfire, he put them in the crosshairs. And now he is ruling over God's people. And unfortunately, some of them stumbled, began to to worship Grecian gods, but others didn't, and it cost them their lives. Now, if we keep reading, starting in verse 36, there's a lot of debate here, okay? I'm not going to sugarcoat this. There is a lot of debate, starting in verse 36, which is, who is this king that comes? Is this king, Antiochus Epiphany, it's just a further description of him? Or is this the future Antichrist, how the New Testament calls the man of lawlessness, the, the the sort of great beast that Antiochus is just a type of who will come right before uh, Christ's second coming, is that him? So are we fast-forwarding in time, you know, thousands of years to the Antichrist? There's debate. I'm not going to get into all of them, but let's just say for a second that that's probably who's in focus here. Is that now, starting in verse 36, we're fast-forwarding in time, and now we have this future king that's going to come, this future prince who's going to come. But regardless of where you fall on this, I just want to point out, look how eerily similar he sounds and how he is described to Antiochus Epiphany. Verse 36. Just, just, Just notice how similar this prince who comes how similar he is to Antiochus Epiphany and how he's described in verses 22 to verse uh, 31. So verse 36, And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exact himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other gods, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these, a god whom his father did not know. He shall honor with with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of foreign gods. Those who acknowledge him he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships, and he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand. Edom and Moab and the main parts of the Ammonites." He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasuries of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with a great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet He shall not come, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. So verse 36, we have this prince, this this king who comes. And like Antiochus, it's all about him, right? He he sets himself up like a god. And it says the only thing he worships is the fortress, meaning the only thing he worships is war. This king seeks to devour the world, just like Antiochus, he seeks to make alliances with others for his own end, and he encourages and gives them gold and silver if they will just align with him. Sounds eerily similar to Antiochus. And then, if you go to verse 40, you even see that a similar language is used talking about kingdoms of the north, kingdoms of the south. The epic war is pictured in terms of kind of historical and biblical geography. And so you have listed Edom and Moab and Ammon and Egypt. Now think about it. Who who are those nations? Well, historically, if you think of the Old Testament, they represent the enemies of God. And so here we have listed the enemies of God and they're aligning with this beast to do his will. And it says, well, they're going to come and they're going to attack. And then verse 45, verse 44 says that he's going to come against The beautiful land, God's people, the church. And then verse 45, we find out his demise just like Antiochus. It says, he will rise to power, but he will fall, and no one, no one will help him. No one will come to his end. So whether this is still talking about Antiochus or a future, it, in one sense, does not matter. Here we have a description of yet another ruler who will come seek to attack the people of God. He will seduce some, but he in the end will not win. And that's the vision. That's the vision of chapter 11. We'll, we'll get in. There's a four more verse, verses that describe one other aspect of this vision, but that's the historical vision. And I just want to stand back and say, for Daniel, what in the world does this mean? Like, why is this helpful? I mean, some of you who love history are like, this is really, really cool. But for me, I'm just sitting there going like, I don't care what happened in the uh, second century before Christ came. Like, what does that have to do with me? Maybe it's just me who thinks like that. So, so for Daniel, who's peering into the future and hearing all these sorts of things, what does this mean for him? And that us standing, maybe in verse 35, looking to the future when this beast is coming again, this future ruler what does this mean for us? Like, how do we apply this to our lives? Well, thankfully, though historians often just give you the, the facts, the, the whole facts and nothing but the facts, luckily we have sort of this angel sent by God who stands outside of time and he interprets for us and tells us why this is important. Like, why do we need to know this history and how can we in the church apply this history to our own lives and the answer, the, the sort of interpretation of all of this history, we see in verse 32 through verse 35. L- look there. Verse 32 and he shall seduce, this is Antiochus, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, who are unfaithful to God. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand though for some days they shall stumble by the sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still waits an appointed time. So the point of this vision, the point of this History, the point of this prophecy, is to press home to Daniel something particular. I think sometimes we think of apocalyptic genre as, oh, this is just really cool to know something about the distance, but there is a sort of oughtness. There is an action to the apocalypse. And we get it here in verse 32. It says that we are to know God and stand firm and take action. Because unfortunately, and we we see this through uh, repetition in verse 33, verse 34, and verse 35, it says over and over again, this word comes up, stumbling. That some are going to stumble, which is another phrase for saying some are going to be seduced. So Daniel, learning that as God's people go back to their home, rebuild the temple and the altar, and begin worshiping God, that There's going to be powers and kings and kingdoms that are going to come, oppress God's people, and some are going to fall away. In the midst of suffering, some are going to just say, just not worth it. You can't beat them? Join them. I mean, isn't that what suffering does? I mean, generally, suffering does two things to us. It either pushes us towards God or pushes us away from God. And so that's what's described here is that some are going to stumble. Some are going to be seduced. Some are going to think, well, I just suffer. It's just too hard. We can't beat them. We're on the losing side of history. And then Daniel is reminding us all that we're not on the losing side of Israel of history. Israel was not on the losing side of history. They are on the winning side of history. Their task, their calling was to stand firm and to take action. Even in the midst of the flame, verse 33, which is the idea of death. Even captivity, that's the idea of, uh, of, 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 of being exiled far from home. Or even if plunder comes, injustices come, he's saying regardless of what happens, whether death or oppression or injustice, whatever suffering falls on God's people, Your job, God's people's job in the 4th century, the 3rd century, the 2nd century, and the 21st century is to stand firm. And then there's this phrase, verse 33, that's so lovely that we just skip over it, but it is so lovely. It says, And the wise among the people shall make many understand. That this vision is supposed to make us wise to understand something And it's just simply this, that the kingdom of God that God is building, it comes, and this is counterintuitive, and it's even hard for me to say, but the kingdom of God comes through suffering. It doesn't come through might. These other kingdoms, they're trying to to advance their kingdoms through military power, but this kingdom doesn't come through military power. It comes through faithful, sacrificial Suffering, being faithful to God, whether in times of oppression, times of injustice, times of martyrdom, regardless of the season, to be faithful. And then it says, and the wise know this, that the kingdom of God comes through suffering and faithfulness to God, and they teach others. They teach others that if suffering comes, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. It doesn't mean that God does not like you or that God's not alive or that God has just forgotten you or somehow you've gotten lost in the shuffle. The wise, the mature know that God is a big God, a sovereign God and that in his providence he brings various trials and tribulations and hardships to us all. But that does not mean that God is not alive or that God is not defending and providing and sustaining his people. It means verse 35, that these trials, these tribulations, are a means of refinement, of purifying, to make us white. You see that there, verse 35? So that they may be refined, purified, and make white until the end. So I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what hardship. But this vision and I'm assuming it it, it relates to the future, whatever comes, this is a reminder to us right now, today, that there is an oughtness to the apocalypse. To stand firm. Because in many ways, we might think, you know, our, our brothers and sisters in Egypt or Morocco or the Middle East and the sort of, if you follow Christ, you lose everything, we go, oh, that's what this is talking about. And and, and it very much does. but, But what about just the idea of suffering or sin? Or, oh, I just don't want to do the hard thing right now. This relates to all of it. And it's a reminder to us that whatever form sin, Satan, or the world takes to seduce us, to peer pressure us into unfaithfulness to God and his word, Here's a reminder to us that we need to be faithful. That God is building his kingdom through the faithfulness of his people to walk with him joyfully even in the midst of the flame, captivity, or the plunder of our goods. So I just encourage us in this Advent season, there are, you know, even today there are wars and rumors of wars. Don't get too preoccupied with them. All these kings, they rose to power and they fell. But there is another king who rules over them all. They will all fall. But God is bringing bringing his kingdom and he's doing it through the faithfulness of his people as they encourage one another and as they help each other and remind each other to be faithful to God. And I think this is a wonderful encouragement to us too when it talks about how the wise teach others. You guys, your suffering, your trials, your hardship, whether at work or in your family, whatever is going on in your life that's hard, share it. This is a reminder that we as a church need to share those trials, those hardships, what's going on in our lives because it's a reminder to us that that that's that's the good theology, that in the midst of cancer, that in the midst of hardship, in the midst of of losing loved ones, that we can still have joy. And then we can still struggle in this life, but we can remind ourselves that even God can work good in the midst of hard things. So that's that's the vision in chapter 11, but there's one more vision, and this is so amazing. I don't even know how to preach chapter 12, verse 1 through 4. It's that good that I almost just want to read it and go, yeah, it's this good, guys. Because chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, is the clearest Old Testament text for the resurrection, the bodily resurrection. Let me read it. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charged Who has charge over your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. So there at verse 1, spoiler alert, it's going it to get worse. All right? Like, um, verse 1 says, it's just, things are going to get better. I love the idea of running water that some, if you look back at history, some people didn't have. Like, I, many things are much more wonderful to live in the 21st century. Um, I, I was one of my favorite historians. He was interviewed, and he said that everyone always asks him, what time period would you want to live in since you are a historian? He said, like, today. He's like, I like toilets and running water, Right? And yet, though things get better, it's going to get worse, right? And yet, verse 1 tells us that God, yet, through the help of angelic hosts, Gabriel there we see in verse 1, or Michael there we see in verse 1, though there are going to be times of anguish, and time, there will come a day where it will be so bad that it has never been so bad in history. Yet, yet, God's people will be delivered I mean, it's an amazing promise that in the midst of hardship, God promises to deliver his people until his second coming. But in the context, when it talks about in verse 1 about, uh, but at that time your people will be delivered, the the question we need to step back and ask is, delivered from what? Because, you know, back in verse 35, it talks about some are going to die. So, what's the delivery? Or is, is just God going to come, come back and everything's going to be all right? Like, what is the delivery that's going to happen here? What's in view there in verse 1? And here's the amazing thing. Because the thing that people are going to be delivered from is nothing short of death itself. Right? You just keep reading and it says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, right, that, that's, the, that's a, a metaphor for death. Like bodily, physical death. It says, they shall awake. Now, here's the crazy thing. This does not say, and only the good people are going to be awoken to resurrection life. No. Here it's a double resurrection. Every human being who's on the planet, every human being made in the image of God will be resurrected. That's what it says, doesn't it? All human beings are going to be resurrected. Now, Here's the sobering reality. Some are going to be resurrected to life. We see that in verse 2. But others are going to be resurrected to everlasting shame and contempt. Now, I think we need to step back and ask a second question, not just what are we delivered from, but as it relates to this resurrection though all people are resurrected, how are some, or what makes some resurrected to life, and how are some resurrected to everlasting content? And in the text, it has everything to do about a book. You guys see that there? Everyone whose name shall be written in a book. Now, how does this work itself out? I think it sort of works itself out like Santa's, Naughty list or nice list, right? Whatever that book's called, right? Right. So how this works, as far as I understand, I haven't done like a deep dive into the theology of of like contemporary Santa Claus lists, but as far as I understand, you've got a naughty list and a nice list. And how you make yourself onto the nice list is that you have more niceness than naughtiness. And those who are on the naughty list, they have more naughtiness than they have nice. I think it fundamentally works like that. I think that's how our world views, broadly speaking, all religion. You've got your lists. There's the good people. There's the bad people. And the good people are those that have better or more goodness than badness. And those that are on the naughty list have more badness than they have goodness. But here's the the whole idea about Christianity, which is when it comes to this book that's described, it doesn't work like that at all. So all humanity, after Adam, they're on the naughty list we are born in Adam. We're born sinners. And so we are on the naughtiness. and there is nothing we can do to make ourselves on the nice list. So there we are in the book of life with on the left side of the of of the naughty list and there's nothing we can do, no good works, no ability. That is the nature of sin in our lives. But then there's one human being that we celebrate on Christmas, Jesus Christ, who was born And he, from the inception, he was on the nice list. Perfectly sinless. Everything he did was perfectly sinless. And he rose, he died then, rose from the grave. And what did that death kind of accomplish? Well, it took anyone who puts their trust and faith in that sinless Savior, and it makes them able to go from the naughty list to the nice list. That is the true meaning of Christmas, is it not? That that's how we get to be resurrected to life. It's not because all of a sudden we've done such amazing things. It's because we've realized that we're on the naughty list and our only hope to get on the nice list is the true glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. And we turn to him, put our trust and faith in him. And at that moment, we are now on the nice list. And then when it talks about this whole idea of being resurrected to newness of life, that's what you gain. That's what you get. And this resurrection, this resurrection is described. You guys, did you guys notice this description of this resurrection life? So those who are on the nice list, when they are bodily resurrected, at the end of time when Christ then comes back, all humanity will be resurrected. And those who, who are in Christ, who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they will be resurrected to life, and now we have a description of what it will be like. They will shine like the brightness of the sky above, like stars forever and ever. Now you might go, Stephen, what does that mean? I have no idea, right? I've never been to heaven, uh, you know? I have no idea what it means. But I do know, or I can guess, what this meant for Daniel. Daniel. In Persia, in the midst of hearing this vision of, of war after war and battle and battle. Can you just imagine for Daniel what this means? It means for him, and I think it means for us too, that your suffering, your hardship, your trial, whatever you're going through, it's worth it in the end. That what you gain is far better than any cost that you paid through faithfulness to God in this life. Daniel, I'm guessing, is sobered, saddened. I'm guessing he's depressed to some extent, hearing that his people are going to suffer at the hands of warring kingdoms. You know, chapter 10 is all about that—that the heavenly battle going on, which is its own sobering reality. And then chapter 11 is this earthly battle going on, And so here's Daniel realizing that God's people are in a battle. And there's casualties to this battle. And that people are not going to get out. And some are going to be seduced away. Some are going to fail. Some are going to stumble in their faith. But here we have a reminder that in the end, it's all going to be worth it. They are going to shine like stars. Now, in some ways, Jesus... Describes himself as bright as a star. And so I'm guessing somehow because we're so united to Christ in heaven that our brightness as stars is in some way a reflection of our union with Christ. That's the best I can explain it. But all I know is this. It is going to be amazing. And so he ends with saying, now seal it up, Daniel. Which is another word. You know, the, the whole idea of a seal is to say, hey, this is, don't tamper with this. This is going to happen. You need to seal it up, and then guard your heart. And remember that this history—it's purposeful. There's an oughtness to it. Be faithful. Follow God. Be, be not seduced by the world. And be ready for Christ's return, when all of humanity be, will be resurrected. And some will be resurrected to life. Uh, I think it's appropriate in one sense to end um, with reading uh, one of my favorite descriptions of a little bit about what heaven is going to be like. Uh, It's just a few words of the last, it's actually the last few words of the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia. In the last battle. It seems appropriate. So I'm going to read this If you know the story, sorry, spoiler alert, but they all die in the end, but they all get to go to Aslan's world, new Narnia, heaven, as it were, and this is how it is described. So I'm going to read this and then I'm going to pray. This is Aslan speaking. And as he spoke, he no longer looked at them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after there were, were so great and they were so beautiful that I cannot write them down. And for us, this is the end of the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia or in Puyallup, let's say, had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning the chapter one of the great story which no one on earth had ever read, which goes on forever and ever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. God, we... We we are thankful for this vision and what it represents for us. We pray that you would... um, fortify our souls and tether ourselves to your word. We pray that you would use this church to encourage greater and greater faithfulness to you. But we pray that we would repent of our sins and run to the throne of grace time and time again. Lord, we know we need one another. We need each other to point us ultimately also to our hope of heaven. Lord, we are so comfortable here many days. Many days we think this is heaven. So thankful for those, those subtle reminders that this is not our home. And so we pray, Lord, that we would in greater ways be able to taste heaven so that we could live more faithful to you in the present. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.